Hey everyone, welcome to the EcoBite podcast, where we will be diving into topics around the environmental industry. If you'd like more context to our conversation and or a crash course on the topic at hand, please view the EcoBite video recording before getting started. Either way, enjoy. Hello everyone, my name is Liv Haney, product manager for EcoBot. And I'm joined by my co-host, Chris Fleming, and our guest, Fred Wagner. Fred, thank you so much uh, for your presentation and discussion on Sackett versus EPA. Thanks very much. Look forward to our discussion. Yes. All right. You said this This is a, a debate that's been going on forever, for more than 35 years. This lack of clarity and, and lack of certainty, there's four separate attempts. I, in my experience limited of just dealing with Supreme Court rulings. How did we get to four separate cases that have reached the Supreme Court? How how are we getting up to the highest court with a, a Waters ruling? And how has precedent not been able to be set? Or um, how have courts not deferred to precedent? Well, I think that it, it starts with the law. And it starts with what Congress said and did not say. Um, the only reason you go back and forth on legal cases is if there's some you know, legitimate dispute or lack of understanding about what Congress meant or didn't mean when it writes a law. Mm-hmm. And with all due respect to the folks in Congress, and I'm sitting at my desk, if I look out the window, I can see the Capitol Dome right, right down the street. Um, with all due respect to them, they aren't necessarily the best at writing laws that tell you exactly what they mean. And so when you have a principle that would seem to make, you know, sense when we're regulating waters in the United States, you read the rest of the statute and the rest of the statute addresses waters in different ways. So just inherently, it wasn't clear right on its face what was meant by the scope of that regulatory authority. And so then you dig a little bit. You dig into the legislative history of, of the bill and you you read the debates and whatnot, and you're going to find enough ammunition for any sort of interpretation of the phrase when you go into those sorts of things as well. So you have disputes because A, Congress isn't necessarily the clearest when they write their law. B, you have disputes because lo and behold, the issue that's relevant to the definition of waters in the United States isn't clear on the ground either. And when Congress writes the Clean Water Act, you know, they weren't necessarily thinking about prairie potholes. They weren't thinking about ephemeral streams. They weren't thinking about, you know, floodplains and this and that. But sure enough, when you get out onto the ground, people such as yourselves say, you know, wait a minute, water features come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And so it became a series of ongoing debates, litigation over is this particular spot regulated and the facts surrounding each particular spot was different. So lack of clarity by Congress. Second, a reality of varying facts and circumstances on the ground. And then three, the reality that the enforcement of the Clean Water Act is done by an agency that does not speak with one voice. The Army Corps of Engineers has district offices around the country, and for years and years and years, uh, what's the phrase? 
balkanized. It's views that it's a balkanized system of enforcement because what you heard from the LA district, you might not have heard from the Philadelphia district. In fact, I'm guaranteeing you that you didn't hear about it. And that was a cultural thing because these district engineers operate very independently and they don't listen to, you know, headquarters for, you know, your particular guidance. So you put all that together with, you know, a, a statute that may not be 100% clear, you know, technical and, and, you know, really environmental issues that create you know, various facts and circumstances. And then an agency that doesn't necessarily enforce something consistently, voila multiple court cases and multiple different variations on the theme. And, you know, the court, as it considered all these cases, at some point, Justice Roberts, in one of the rulings, you know, flat out begged. I mean, he, he just wasn't, you know, cajoling or hoping. He begged the agency, says, please, please, I hope you're going to come out with some regulations that solve this, right? I hope you do that. Um, because the agencies just they really didn't. They issued, they issued guidance, they issued, you know, general rules, manuals, but it still it was almost done on a case-by-case basis. And, and in fact, that's one of the things that really ticked off Justice Alito. You know, he really hated that. He said, you know, wait a minute. How do you tell the, 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 the public, the citizens, you know, we'll, we'll let you know when we see it. You may not know what a board of the United States is, but we'll go out, we'll check it out, we'll do some tests, and then we'll tell you. Mm-hmm. He hated that. And so that's another way of explaining why there's been so much litigation in cases that have gone up and you know back and forth to the court so many times, because this this has been over the decades something that's been reviewed and considered by the agency on a case-by-case basis. And that's never been good for certainty. Mm-mm. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, so I'm a senior solutions engineer here at uh, Ecobot and uh, previously a consultant for over 20 years. And so I've had to live through the evolution, uh, you know, at least since the Rapanos and Carabelle cases. And so, you know, I've seen it evolved a, a great deal during that time. And, um, you know, one thing I, I find that's interesting about this ruling is, you know, anybody that studied any natural sciences knows that it's not black and white. It's gray. You know, a wetland boundary can be debated. You know, it's I feel like this ruling, what they tried to do is say this is black and white. Like, you know, they tried to say, you know, continuous surface water connection and, you know, uh, difficult to determine where the water ends and the wetland begins. You know, they're trying to make it black and white, but I see so much vagueness in the ruling that, you know, even though they're coming up with a guidance document, there's there's still much debate to be had once that guidance comes out. Uh, I, I think you're right. And the there will be a continued legal disputes, I think. Um, so, as I said, when the regulation comes out, there's going to be, you know, a, a tussle over that. But then, you know, on any particular project, any particular permit application, there certainly can be, you know, more more debate and discussions. You know, a particular light it doesn't have to be the sackets. You know, they'll finally get to build their house. We think, <laughs> um, but you know, some other property owner is going to say, "Hey, wait a minute! I don't think I need a permit for this. You you, you made this ruling, and they're going to challenge it." Uh, and the question is, you know, how are those disputes going to mature, and are we going to find over time at least some measure of, if not consistency, at least some trends, some predictability, right? And I, and I think 
you know, I think people have given up, Chris, for certainty. I think I think that the the search for that is it's like the search for the Holy Grail. But and then also let me flip it on its head. Um, are you aware of any lawsuits where people have sued the federal government for allowing waters of the U.S. to be impacted? Because you know, there are um, citizen supervisions in the Clean Water Act that allow advocacy groups, you know, local citizens to say, hey, wait a minute, you, you did something in error here. Um, so, yes, I'm aware of those types of things. And, you know, yeah, I, I think that the rhythm of environmental law generally is such that you live through an era where the government done a lot and then people react to it like the governors of the states that challenge the regulation. And then you live through an era where the government done little and it's deregulation, right? And then the citizen groups, the advocacy groups try to fill in the breach. They try to jump in and try to do some stuff. So absolutely, Chris, I think that if, if this case and the, the, you know, most people view it as a, a much more restrictive interpretation of what will be jurisdictional and what will be protected under the act. If that's true, you're absolutely going to see a bunch of advocacy groups trying to step in to, to you know, mandate more protection if they think that protection has been lost. The other thing that we haven't talked about yet, and I'm, I'm wondering if you, know, you agree, you know, based on you know, your relationships and working in individual, individual states, is that I believe that the states now are going to step in big time. Um, again, which is, of course... Ironic, because over the years, people have been saying, oh, we need a firm definition of WOTUS so that there's certainty. And now they have this definition. And what's going to happen is the states are all going to do all different things. And so mm -hmm. rules can be depending on what state you're going to be in. And where I live in Maryland, there's an existing statute that's pretty strong in terms of tidal and coastal resources. I could see under the current governor uh, that there could be greater uh, regulation and perhaps even a movement to even strengthen that law. Uh, in, in other states, uh, ironically, maybe even red states, but that have a tremendous amount of these coastal and wetland resources that are important to protecting its coastlines, even they you know, may get involved in surprising ways uh, that may provide additional protections that are important to you know, their you know, basic infrastructure and their population centers. I mean, think, think Louisiana. You know, think North Carolina and stuff like that. I mean, it isn't necessarily so that they can say, "Hey, great, there's less protected. Let's let's go," because they they're aware of some of the you know realities of harm that could happen if some of these resources are are not protected. So you're going to see you know a whole range of responses from the states uh, if they feel that you know, wait a minute, uh, resources in Maryland around the Chesapeake Bay may be under threat. You know, they make they go more, and you know what the rule is. States can make rules that can be no less strict than the federal rule. They can be more strict than the federal rule, but they, they, they can't be any less. So if a state wants to go above and beyond for a whole variety of legitimate reasons, they can do it. And I'm predicting there's going to be at least a dozen states that will take up that invitation. And that's going to create a whole bunch of other issues to try to track different rules in different places. That's been uh, my experience for sure. I worked for a consulting firm that did, a, I mean, nationwide projects. So definitely working in states like um, 
Massachusetts and Connecticut and in New England, there's some very strict rules. And um, at the county level, the state level and different conservation districts, there's all kinds of stuff. And then in some states, there's very little regulation and they just defer to, to federal. I'm very interested, but in the state by state versus federal um, sort of regulation, we've seen that Florida has taken over control of, of their wetlands and it hasn't gone very good. <laughs> there hasn't been a lot of um, progress that's been made. I think that the regional, from a science perspective, um, the regional characteristics make a big difference though. So think about even way back when trying to determine water rights. The The discussion of water rights has been a question mark in some cases and it's divided between the country because water is more readily available in some places than others. So it doesn't really make sense for someone in Washington, D.C. or in New York or Connecticut to be making rules for Nevada or Utah, where the environment's completely different. Um, so there can be some benefits, but again, when you come to interstate waterways, when you come to something like the Colorado River that has a lot of implications downstream, I definitely see the area of concern. Um, well, what the court would say, what I, I'd say, with I think what the majority of the court would say in Sackers is like, don't you worry your little head about those, <laughs> right? They say that, they say that's obvious. Those are no, navigable waters, clearly jurisdictional. You know, no one, no one, don't don't worry about that. You know, and and but I think what people would say is that what we are worried about is those again those lands that link the obvious. Mm -hmm you know, navigable waters to these other water features. That's that's the thing that people are most worried about. Well, and it's less not necessarily worried about the river itself, but about um, maybe not so specific um, adjacent wetlands or things that are connected by, I mean, underground waters. In a lot of cases, you're carrying pollution in or, or sediment. That was, the basis, that was the basis of the significant nexus test. Yeah, yeah. That, so. that, that, was, that was the basis for it. They, they said, look, you know the, the the you know the elbow bones connected to the hip bone. <laughs> yeah. It's true from a, from an environmental standpoint. That's that's what, so you have to just describe that. Mm -hmm. but the problem that the the majority had was that in many instances that's not easy, and so you're a property owner looking out on your land and you see this you know wet little feature, and you know the majority in Saka said you know it really kind of stinks. That in order to determine whether the government has influence on your land, you have to hire one of you guys <laughs> yeah. to let them know what the hydrological connection is and so forth. And you you just can't know it by seeing it. And that that also seemed a little bit unfair to the majority. You know, the problem with that, of course, is it's that's true that sometimes you just don't know, and you need to do that little bit of investigation. And 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 your point, Liv, I think is well taken, which is the reason. That you know, wetlands became uh, an important feature of the Clean Water Act. The reason that a Republican president came up with the concept of no net loss of wetlands wasn't Democrat. It was a Republican president. The first George Bush came up with that concept under his leadership and his EPA. The reason they came up with it is for the the exact reason that the the features of those types of wetlands also influence overall water quality health due to traditional navigable waters. They just do. And so that's where that whole came from, right? So you, you have uh, 
the, the majority saying that I'm trying to balance the certainty that a landowner has. And then you have even a conservative justice like Justice Kavanaugh, who was in the dissent. Justice Kavanaugh was in the dissent. He said, you know, wait a minute. You know, how are we now as judges becoming the arbiters of what of what's you know regulated or not? Where do we have the expertise to do that? Why are we now making this decision? You know, when it's clear that from a technical perspective, from an environmental perspective, that there are these issues. It, it's clear that they exist. But now we're in the business of doing that. You know, we're the Supreme Court. We're not the EPA. Um, and, and that was from Justice Kavanaugh. So, you know, that's that, that was one of the interesting and surprising elements of the second ruling. Yeah. You mentioned this a couple of times, and I want to... Um... I'll, I'll play the straight man here and try and get a, a layman's definition. Talk to me about traditional navigable waters. What are they? How did they get that role or that title? Um, how does something become a traditional navigable waters? Well, I mean, the sort of origin of this concern over what is a traditional navigable water came from Rapinos and Justice Scalia. And Justice Scalia, you know, basically said, if you can float a boat in it, that's navigable. That's what it means. Mm-hmm. And there was some, you know, folks, even on this court, I think Justice Thomas was one, you know, perhaps, who said, yep, that's it. You want a clear test? That's what navigable is. And I think you know, even Justice Alito felt a little bit wary of making it that severe. And so the traditional navigable waters became uh, the the traditional sense of you know rivers and streams and oceans and things like that that um, you know from the the sense of the um, uh, Clean Water Act and the original definitions that's where it would fit so you can go back to the law that's what it was and uh, and I think the reason that there's a demarcation between tr- these traditional waters and these other regulated waters um, was because of the uh, hydrological connections that you described earlier which is you know there's clearly some places where you know you're not going to be floating a boat it's wet marshy damp type things but you know th- there's an indistinguishable connection between those and the river and the bay and the ocean and things like that and that's why the, the court laid out that definition they th- in an effort to explain the intermediary resources that were going to be covered it said well we all know that what those are meaning the traditional waters so that's why they had to define those in order then to define the scope of jurisdiction for those intermediate waters that were going to be waters in the United States. So that's why it was important to the court to lay that out, because you can't define something that's in, indistinguishable from another thing unless you also define that other thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are those do those differ from section ten and that section ten waters are the ones that previously had commerce off of them or on them, or is that no, no, it's because it's really peculiar to the water act itself. Okay, okay. <laughs> Don't make things more complicated. Yeah, I just want to know it all. All right, yeah. Chris, what were you going to say? Yeah, so, I, you know, I just sort of want to bring it back to what you were talking about with states uh, being such important players now. You know, let's say this, you know, this rolling, you know, sticks and, you know, reduced uh, regulation of uh, of wetlands and waters. You know, I, I know there's like 25 or 26 states with, you know, more rigorous regulations than, you know, the federal government. Uh, I saw with the state of Michigan, uh, I think it was today, came out with a statement just 
reassuring the the people in Michigan that we are we and we continue to protect these resources, even you know in light of this ruling. Um, but then you know also when you come to you know where I was at in Tennessee, we had extreme regulation. Tennessee is has very progressive water rules, um, considering uh, the politics of the state at this time. And but then you come to North Carolina, and we have a farm bill that was passed by the legislature, the governor vetoed it, and now it's back in front of the legislature and it reduces regulations. So do you foresee, um, you know, attacks towards, you know, these state regulations in some environments? hundred percent I do. Yeah. You know, and, and so the question is going to become, you know, what's the, what's the thing that the, the, the state, the governor, the legislature are trying to protect, you know, is it, you know, is there a, a stress on agriculture? Is it stress on, you know, um, you know, poultry or, you know, those, you know, a, you know, animal feedlots and stuff like what, what is it that they're, they're trying to protect and where do they think the, the threat is of additional regulation of these water features, right? I mean, one, one of the things that, I, why I'm a little bit dubious, Chris, that, you know, 50% of, protected waters are, no, are off the books. The reason I'm a little bit dubious of that is that I don't think that there is this terrible threat that people are going to fill in every inch of those type of waters. And again, I know some people will and whatnot, but there's just too many things that are going on in the world around us from you know beach homes being washed into the ocean to you know, storms creating greater flood surges and storm surges into communities and so forth. There's just too much of that for you know rational developers, you know, business people, property owners to say, yeah, fair. yeah, that doesn't matter. We're you know, this that's not a water. You know, by gum, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna build my fill in the blank here. You know, so speak, speaking to that, one thing that I, I saw, you know, in especially in the last 10 years of, of being a consultant is um, you see a lot of municipalities and, you know, they got MS4 obligations. And, and what I was seeing is like the way that they do it is they're like, we don't regulate the wetlands or the streams that we regulate the buffers, but you can't get to the resource unless you impact the buffer. But, you know, it was, you know, in, in the city of Nashville, you know, I, I would, you know, pretty frequently tell clients, like, I can get your core permit. I can get your state permit. You're not getting a variance. And so I, I think the municipalities could also play a, a strong role in this. No, that's absolutely true. And, and I think that's consistent with my, my sense that, you know, although I agree that what's protected is less, I, I may disagree with some environmental groups that talk about the intensity and the scope of the threat because there's there are some other checks and balances there are some other rules in play and you know the the, the market also works in kind of strange ways too i mean if if somebody says hey I got, I got this great idea for a beachfront you know resort or this kind of waterfront resort you know are they going to be able to insure it could they even get it insured and that's going to be a major disincentive to develop in some of these lands and whatnot. So you end up with a, 
a subset of a subset of traditional, of, of, of not traditional, of water features that really are the subject of this debate over many, many years. The, your prairie potholes and your ephemeral streams that only fill up every now and again or, or, or this type of thing. And in some ways, if that's where we end up, I almost think that's a manageable level of uncertainty. You see what I mean? I, I just don't believe for a moment that, you know, Katie barred the door, everybody will go find your nearest wetland and fill it. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah. I, I just don't I just don't see that happening for all the reasons that we have just discussed. I think there's real disincentives to do that to a certain extent. But if you're in Oklahoma, I'm not picking on Oklahoma, but if you're in Oklahoma, <laughs> there's no water anywhere near, and there's mm-hmm. a damp area. That's no longer going to be jurisdictional. Mm-hmm. And from an environmental perspective, how much do we care about that <laughs> overall? I, I mean, I think that's part of this discussion, right? The, the advocates would say you care about everything. It all matters because it goes to groundwater and that's, it's all important. But some other folks may say, you know, let's keep our, let's keep our focus on these areas that are the ones that are truly contributing in, in a mm-hmm. big way. So the things that we need, uh, so that that's all going to play out. I mean, it's going to take years to to know what this really means because we're. It's going to be hard to count the number of permits that aren't needed. Mm-hmm. You know, do you know what I mean? How do you count mm-hmm. that? How do you count the number of permits that would have been filed but now that aren't? Mm-hmm. That's gonna be really hard to know. <laughs> and, but you know, yeah. you're using you're using a word uncertainty. Um, and I almost feel like um, the regulated community is almost like the dog that caught the car. They wanted this so bad, but now they got it. And now your JDs are in limbo. Your permits are in limbo. No approved JDs for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, till September 2nd. No, um, but uh, you know, th- there's just so much uncertainty, and you know, di- consultants are dealing with it, general public, you know, and also the regulators themselves. You know, they mm-hmm. they may have finished you know 60 JDs this year, but they've got to revisit 48 of them now. Yeah, um, I have so many clients, Chris, that are calling me. What do we do? Yeah, <laughs> we've been waiting so long, mm-hmm. and we have a pending at the end of the year, and they said, wait, because the regulations are coming out. Mm-hmm. And then the regulations came out. And then they said, wait, we got to wait for the Sackett ruling to come out. And then the Sackett ruling came out. And then the court said, wait, we got to come up with <laughs> yeah. the Sackett ruling. So, I mean, you, I mean, built in, you're talking about, you know, so much delay just in, because of all that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, you know, the, the law is funny that way. I mean, you know, with wetlands, you know, we, we finally got this, you know, you know, more narrow definition or whatnot. How is that going to play out? And is business going to be better off or worse off? And it's not altogether certain that it's the result that everybody anticipated finally getting this, uh, finally getting this ruling. I know. I I didn't have, I don't have a ton of background in in consulting. I'm still relatively um, new in my overall career, but uh, just with the changes that, that I witnessed, I remember going to my managers and and uh, 
mentors and say, well, what, what do I do now? How do I delineate? Am I supposed to do it this the same way? And, and they always said, you know, the science hasn't changed. It's just the interpretation of regulation that's changed. So keep delineating exactly how you're doing it. And what I've found the longer um, that I worked in consulting was the large corporations building these mega wind farms and solar farms and utility transmission lines and pipelines, they wanted nothing to do with waters. They said, you know what, we don't, we, because of all of the delays that may come up, give us a big red X and tell construction not to go in there. And so I thought that was an interesting repercussion was we were seeing more of those smaller wetlands conserved because no one wanted to have to deal with the potential. It just wasn't worth the time. So your but experience, the, your experience agree with my point, which is yeah, yeah. You know, those same, those same companies are not going to say, Hey, great. Now we don't have to worry about it. Let's go. Back. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. still going to be, we don't want, we don't want to deal with it at all. So I, yeah. I, think, I think your experience is exactly right. Because the timeline of these, the life cycles of these projects are, are 10, 15 years. So who knows what's going to happen? The one thing that, that I wanted to touch on um, with your example of the Oklahoma wetland, one of the big things I think it impacts is biodiversity with threatened and endangered species, and then also um, cultural resources. A lot of times wetlands was the trigger that then triggered a cultural study or a TNE study and, and stuff like that. So do you think, how do you think that's going to play out? Is there going to be just kind of tough or separate, separate rulings for that or what? No, it's, it's not just tough because the, the Sackett ruling didn't repeal the Endangered Species Act. Mm-hmm. Sackett ruling didn't repeal, repeal the National Historic Preservation Act or any other uh, federal statutes protecting tribal resources or other cultural resources. That's still there. Mm-hmm. And so I think your questions, in some way, the, the answer lies in your question, which is what's the resource that's out there that's, you know, tri- you know, it's potentially, you know, triggered by your, your concern. And is there other authority for the protection of the resource? And, you know, in most instances, the answer is going to be yes. You know, so, you know, you may see less permitting under the Clean Water Act, but you may see kind of higher enforcement and more issues related to the Endangered Species Act. You know, so, um, yeah, those, those haven't gone away. Um, it's just, you know, the, if there's no federal permit needed, ergo, no federal action, ergo, no NEPA, you know, that, that's my point about how do you count the things that you're not doing? That's, I think that's the concern that the advocates really point to, which is, you know, it's going to be unknown to the regulate to, to us as advocates. It's going to be unknown to the agencies what has been lost, really, because there's no way to account for what you don't know about. And I, I was going to ask you, actually, I thought you were going to go in this direction when you started talking about some of the delineations you were doing. I was, I was going to ask whether you feel that there's a market now for consultants to help clients say, that this isn't a wetland. Yeah, I mean, I I think so. I think that's that's partially um, that's partially the job of a of a consultant in general. Something I find really interesting is is when you're talking about like homeowners that say, "Oh, I want I want to build something over here. I want to do this." Truly, that was not. I, I worked at a large environmental or an engineering consulting firm with really large clients that just gave us all of the work and said, you go do it. Give me a permit when it's done. But all of those um, sort of 
one-off people, how how do they know what to do even? How do we make this where they could they could potentially easily identify a well? And I know we've had people reach out to Ecobot that download our free version and say, okay, so like, does this get me a permit or what does this do? And we're like, no, that's not, not quite just for anyone to use. But um, I think that's, it, it should just be more common knowledge across, across the board. I think that um, there's definitely room for a company to step in and say, this is what you need to look for. This is what, what you want to see. And um, yeah. I, mean, could help. I mean, it does come down to agency enforcement, doesn't it though? I mm-hmm. mean, there's still going to be the sackets of the world that are going to go out and build a house on where they think. And they yeah. may say, hey, I just looked out there. I, re- I, re- I read that newspaper article about that decision. This is no longer jurisdictional. And they build their house. And there's still going to be instances where the Army Corps of EPA, you know, they just disagree. It's, mm-hmm. I, I know what you think, but you know, we disagree. So there's still going to be instances where there's going to be enforcement from the agency against actors who go out there and think they know now. Uh, what is or isn't regulated and they, they they could make a wrong decision or they can make a sloppy decision or they can make yeah. a will, or they can make a willfully negligent decision and that, yeah. I, th- I think that's where you see the municipalities stepping in um, and then you also see especially states with more rigorous you know regulations that's you know and that's usually when you know things get flagged um, and then but also another thing is, you know, the general public doesn't always know where wetlands are and, and we don't know where the wetlands are. I think it's important that we document what we have. And, you know, with the technology that exists today, it's, you know, it's impo- it's more important than ever, especially in light of this ruling, that we focus on documenting what we have. Well, I mean, it's a great point. And I think that, you know, you mentioned the renewable energy industry, a, lo- a lot of the effort that went into understanding, you know, where these types of developments could go. Obviously, one was related to, you know, where's the resource, obviously. But but beyond that is, okay, if we agree that the resource is here, you know, where are places where we should, just shouldn't be building if we had to make a choice? And, you know, federal agencies have tried to step in there, try to make recommendations as to, okay, this is a great place to develop, but prefer to do it here, not here often reasons because they're protected resources or things or things that we're not sure about. So if we are going to permit X amount of acres for solar, let's do it in this area, not that area. And I think Chris, your point's well taken that it could very well be that on the, the, the city level on the local level, there will be efforts to say, Hey, look, you know, from a zoning perspective, perhaps, you know, doesn't maybe not even regulatory from a zoning perspective, you know, these are the areas that we think we should be off limits. And, you know, is there, you know, a push in certain jurisdictions to, you know, create more, cons- you know, c- conservation categories of zoning? So whereas, you know, you're, you, you might anticipate development or growth in your community, there's certain areas that you want to put off limits. And is the justification for that, in part, some of these concerns? It's possible. I, I think a lot of that is driven by flooding. <laughs> where I've seen the most significant regulations, you know, surrounding uh, municipal municipalities, it's it's flooding issues that they're responding to. How many times can they rebuild certain areas or, 
you know, encourage people to settle or build in certain areas that would, mm-hmm. would be affected that way. Well, that's, that's true. And if it's, you know, if it's an accepted you know, scientific uh, principle that the, the water features that we think should be covered uh, under the Clean Water Act are sort of very much related to that phenomenon, the, the flooding phenomenon, well, you know, you, you can fairly quickly make those kind of connections, you would think, in terms of the lands that you want to protect and, and the reasons why you want to protect them. Uh, but again, uh, on the state level, on the city level, you bet. I think that could happen. All right. I think this is a topic that all of us could discuss for many, many hours. I know I have a whole bunch more questions I didn't even get to. Um, but I just want to take some time now. If we have any, Fred, if you have any closing thoughts just on the discussion to wrap up or um, a hope for the future or, or anything, this is. Just take a minute or two to to give us that. Well, I mean, the, the first big watershed moment in this watershed debate uh, will be, you know, what what EPA and the Corps say upcoming in September. Are they going to be relatively uh, docile in terms of modifying their rule to reflect the the language in the majority opinion socket, or are they going to say, yeah, we understand what you said, but are they going to try to carve out some other stuff that they feel is still really important? And so, so how, how docile or how cantankerous are the agencies going to be in reaction to the opinion? So that's going to be a big moment to see, um, you know, how much of a fight they want to take on. Cause as you pointed out, Chris, there's going to be another challenge to whatever they do. Um, so we'll see that. And I think the next, you know, big things we'll see are, are, are on individual project bases. You know, are there projects where, uh, you know, permits would have uh, uh, protected, I'm making a number, 10 acres. Now they're only protecting five. The developer goes out, starts building it, and then you see litigation. You know, from community groups or, or advocacy groups arguing to see those and how those are going to play out in light of the new ruling. And that's going to take, you know, some time to, to sort of see how some of those uh, t- disputes are resolved. Um, so I, I guess my closing thought is, if you're hoping for a uh, a final word and <laughs> no longer thinking about this, it, it, that that's not the way it's going to be. But I do think you can, for the folks who've been hoping for this for the years, you can expect at least somewhat more clarity, somewhat more certainty. And what I would say is that the 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 scope and the quantity of true debates over what is covered, what is jurisdictional, not they're going to be much more confined. They're going to be much more limited. And, you know, perhaps that's the best we could hope for, that there'll still be arguments, there'll still be disputes, but there'll be fewer of them. And and the ones that do come up aren't going to go all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, Because I I can tell you, uh, Justice Alito and the others who finally ruled on this, they they do not want to see another war. They're done. (laughs) In their natural lives. It doesn't mean it won't happen again. Doesn't mean mm-hmm. whatever happened, but you know, for the foreseeable future, it's all going to play out on the agency's level, on an individual permit level, and maybe sometimes on individual, you know, litigation case level. That's how it's all going to play out. So that's uh, that's my final thought. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Fred. Um, we're so excited to have you on EcoBite, and we can't wait to share this with everyone. Thanks, and come back again. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs>